Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Good morning, time for your Mediated Conversation this Wednesday morning. Yesterday, 100 years ago, was an important day. It was the first time in South Africa that a woman was allowed to go into a court as an advocate and argue before a judge. Her name was Irene Geffen. Because of colonialism and apartheid, the first black woman to appear as a lawyer in a court in South Africa was Desiree Finkler in 1967. She's still with us and and attended a ceremony to mark these events yesterday. But the legal profession sometimes gives the impression, I think may have been, quite slow to catch up with the rest of society. For a very long time, there were only two women judges on the Constitutional Court. Only now do we have our first woman Deputy Chief Justice. If you look at the high-profile cases in court, you'll see that people still seem to select male advocates to represent them, and often white male advocates at that. And in fact, the first black woman to be recognized as a senior Council was Hamotsu Moroka only in 2005. So then, what experience do women lawyers have now? And is this still a male-dominated profession? And what does that mean for justice? First this morning, how does the profession treat female advocates? Michelle LaRue is a well-known advocate and an adjunct professor in the law school at the University of Cape Town. And then, what's happened to people perhaps from a younger generation? Advocate Mawande Setibaza is a practicing advocate and with the Pabasa Association of South Africa. The implications for justice of having a profession which still appears to be male-dominated. Advocate Brenda Madomisa is the director at the Wiser Collective. And finally, the impact of diversity on the bench for the rest of society. To put it another way, the power of a black woman judge handing down a ruling in a politically contentious case. We'll speak to the diversity expert, Asanda Ingrishing. We start then with the advocate and professor, Michelle LaRue. Professor LaRue, good morning. Morning, Stephen. You were, I understand, at one of the events yesterday to mark the centenary of women arguing in our courts. I can't imagine how important it must have been for you to remember what happened 100 years ago. Well, the actual truth is I was not there, and that is part of what we were celebrating. What do I mean by that? I was arguing a complex case in the competition tribunal, uh, acting in you know, a, a merger for many billions of rand, as an advocate, as a member of the profession. So when the high courts in uh, Johannesburg, Pretoria, and Peter Maritzburg had their ceremonial sittings yesterday, we were marking the fact that it's, it's 100 years Uh, since the Women Legal Practitioners Act was passed, which allowed women to join the profession of attorneys, advocates, conveyances, and notaries. And the way that that act changed uh, the opportunities for women was to recognize us as people. Why do I say that? Because previously, there were these uh, decisions by the then appellate division, which said that when you read legislation that regulates these professions and admission to them, and it talks about a person, Even though normally, if the person is referred to with he or him, you would include women. But because women were never uh, able to be lawyers, they reasoned that we were not people, and therefore those acts correctly excluded us from the profession. So a piece of legislation that was passed, which said when an act uses he or him or person or the terms, attorney, advocate, notary, or conveyancer, that now includes women. Um. At the time, I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be the first woman to argue in a court. Everybody else would have been a man. The people in charge would have been a man, would have been men. And the world was very much against women. Well, in my case yesterday, I'm appearing in front of a panel of three men as the decision makers. And my two opponents are both men. 
So I'm still the only woman who talks 100 years later. So there are certainly cases and areas of law where there is more diversity among the advocates that appear and, and present argument. And certainly there's more diversity in the junior ranks. So while it's a profession that rewards seniority and experience, and unfortunately there's no short tra- uh, shortcut or fast track to having years of experience and the judgment that comes with that. Uh, but if you look at the juniors that sit in a lot of these cases, it's only a matter of time before they will be on their feet arguing, and most importantly, arguing in front of a bench that looks very different now. Female judges are often presiding in these cases. Um, are you still made to feel as if you are a woman, while men are not made to feel as if they are men? Does gender matter still matter in our courts, despite the fact that everyone wears robes? Absolutely. So uh, let me give you some simple examples. When I'm an acting judge, the default uh, in the high court is, uh, you know, you should address the judge as my lord, my lady. And because we're so used to saying my lord, the number of times I get called my lord, (laughs) because people just, you know, it's just the way that we address each other. But that's a very minor example. Far more serious are where you hear that briefing in briefing patterns and in briefing conversations, attorneys just aren't prepared to trust a woman with a high profile case, with an important case, you know, she's good enough to do all the work as the junior and have all the consultations with the clients and prepare all the documents. But when it comes to who gets to stand up and speak, they will sometimes, they will oftentimes bring in uh, a male uh, senior advocate to, to play that role. And it's building that trust and showing that women are just as skilled, just as excellent, just as intelligent, just as uh, capable of exercising strategic judgment and giving them the opportunities to do that. And, you know, again, it's a process where there's been more progress in the traditionally gendered fields of, uh, of family law. But now across the board, you see more and more women uh, in those professions, either as attorneys or as advocates or as the judges who are allocated to hear the cases. Advocate Michelle LaRue, Professor, thank you very much indeed. An advocate, as you can hear, an adjunct professor of the Law School at the University of Cape Town. Your mediated conversation continues. Advocate Mawanda Seti Baza is a practicing advocate, also a member of PABASA. Advocate, good morning and thank you for your time. Morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. You've heard the experience of Advocate LaRue. Um, I don't want to ask any questions, but I think you may come from a generation after her. How's it been for you? Um, you know, nothing much has changed. I, I, I think perhaps, uh, Stephen, just to paint the landscape, we have a uh, system that has been there for a hundred of years that did not have a black female advocate in mind. So obviously there are barriers to entry, right? And in order for anyone to excel in their profession or to showcase their intellectual progress, they have to get opportunities opportunities in the form of grief. So as much as, um, and I think um, Advocate Leroux has touched on this, the issue of briefing patterns, it's still a live issue um, for, for young black female advocates because there is not enough work that will enable someone to, you know, to be able to move through the ranks and be able to take stock. So the impediments are still there. And um, yes, there is transformation, but not at the rate at which it should be happening, unfortunately. 
I would like to think that it should, as Advocate LaRue said, get easier and easier for women, that it would be easier for younger women than it was for the generations before them. Is there any hope that that's going to happen or maybe is happening now? It is happening at a certain, but, but at a slow pace. I will give you, I will give you an example, um, uh, Stephen. When perhaps you get into a brief as a junior and you're female, there, there, there are obviously those doubts to say, well, I wonder if she'll be able to, to, you know, to, to perform. And you get into the brief and they, 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 you have to work twice as hard to prove yourself just to have half of what others have. So it's a reality that they constantly having to prove yourself, constantly having to work as hard to disprove the notion that women are less capable. And that is the frustration that we sit in. Is it the men in the legal profession? Is it because of the way that the men behave that this is happening? Is it just them? Are they primarily mm. responsible? I mean, their clients will also play a role. A lot of the clients will be men. I think it's an oversimplification if you have to say that it's necessarily you would point, you would point it directly at our male counterparts. I think it's a systematic thing. And what I mean by systematic thing is you've got a client, the ecosystem is that you've got a client who will then brief an attorney, an attorney will then brief counsel. So the ball does not only lie to our male advocates. It starts from a client perspective. So it's a societal issue. Clients also having the belief that a female advocate is able to argue a case. Same goes for an attorney. And obviously, at the, the, at, at the bar level, you would, that is when uh, um, um, the issue, I suppose, the argument of, 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 the male, of, of the male advocates would come in to say, well, are the male advocates empowering females? It is happening, but at a very slow pace. So change needs to happen at all three spheres, at client level, at an attorney level, and obviously at, um, at a male, male advocate level. If there were more women judges, would that force male advocates to change their attitudes? Would it just change the way society sees it as well? I think the, 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 it, you know, the fact that now the bench is obviously more representative, it's, um, it's important on two aspects. And why I say this is one, it's important one, for um, representation, for younger, uh, you know, for younger black women who want to come into the profession, who are able to see that indeed we do have a black female uh, deputy chief justice. It's important in that regard. But as well, it is important for the male advocates for them to see that when you go and argue a case, it is not uh, a norm for them to appear before their male counterpart or a male. So um, I think also having, it's important to have female judges in order for the narrative for the male uh, advocates for themselves to know that indeed women are able to sit on the bench and make good reasons a judgment. Advocate Mwanda Seti Baza, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate the time and practicing advocate, also a member of Papasa. You with SAFM, uh, it is a quarter to nine the time. You mediated a conversation this morning around the fact that it's now 100 years since women were first allowed to argue in court as lawyers, as you heard from one of our previous guests. It was all about whether women were considered to be a person or not. Advocate Brenda Madomisa is the director of the Wise Collective. Uh, Advocate Madomisa, good morning and thank you for your time.
Good, good morning, Stephen, and thank you for having me, and good morning to the listeners. The fact that all of this still happens, the fact that the profession is still male-dominated, does this have an impact on justice, uh, both for society and particularly the justice that women get? I mean, I, my, the two previous speakers have tried to in, illustrate uh, the, the, the challenges that we face as, as a society, but in general, how we have viewed women uh, as, as non-persons and not human beings for the longest of time. So we, we coming, we're coming from a very low base to get our voices to be heard and to be understood and to be seen to be competent. Uh, and um, the, the, the travesty of all of this is that once you have a visualization of maleness and, and masculinity in all your life, and every time you open up a radio, when you, open, when you switch on your television, and what you see is machismo and, 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 and masculinity, you, you are going to, by, by, by not design, but you're going to believe that that is the voice that is the strongest and that is the voice that should be listened to. So women are capable, women are competent. However, society still believes that because of the way that society is utilized to believe that they are of less of, 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 of being competent, of being smart, of being uh, intellectual, of being human beings. And, and that's the, the ground that we're trying to, to, to cover so that you, you look at me as a competent individual who can represent your, 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 your case without thinking that I am not capable because I'm a woman. And I think that's the work that is being done on a daily basis. The focus should be that me as a child, and that's what the work that we do at Wise for Africa, is that once we brief uh, attorneys and, and advocates, we are very intentional that it must be women who must be in these cases, especially cases that have got a strong feminist jurisprudence that you want to, to, to register in, in the court. Um, sometimes uh, in various places, sometimes it's been in the management of an airline, uh, but when someone needs to make a major change because there's a problem with the culture, you can't just aim to change one thing. You have to change lots of things. If we want to change the sort of male-dominated ethos of the justice system now, would it maybe be also correct that if you want to do that, a lot of other things have to change too? You have to lose the robes. You have to lose the forms of address. You know, my lady, my lord, all of those things. All of that, if you don't change all of that, you're actually going to battle to change the male uh, ethos of it. Absolutely, Stephen. We need to lose those trappings, uh, lose this whole sidebar and bar, uh, lose uh, these colonial terms that we have adopted and, and, and how we, we address the court. In, in, in the way we, 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 we present ourselves in the court, it, it perpetuates uh, masculinity, it perpetuates age discrimination uh, because when 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 you are not used to saying my lady and what you have known for the last 20 years or 30 years is my lordship you are going to continue to believe that even the woman standing uh, before you is your lordship so you have to take away uh, all of those trappings uh, with this legal profession that's why justice is unaffordable and expensive in this country because we have this trappings of sidebars and the bar and senior counsel and seniority and judges believe that if you are senior, we can only, you've got a better voice than a junior counsel. So we have to lose all of that and, and, and level the playing field and have legal practitioners appearing uh, irrespective of their gender, race, sexual orientation and everything as an age.
Advocate Brenda Madomisa, thank you very much indeed, Director of the WISE Collective. In a moment, we'll continue this conversation with the diversity expert, Asanga Ngwesheng. SAFM, guiding you through the rush hour traffic. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Continuing your mediated conversation this morning about the fact that it's now 100 years since women were allowed to argue in the courts in South Africa. Eight minutes to nine. Asanda Ngwesheng is an expert, a diversity expert. She joins us now. Asanda, good morning. Good morning and thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, black women are probably still more likely to be employed as a cleaner in the court than the judge in charge of the courtroom. How important is it to have women judges in control, in power, if you like, in our society? I think, uh, you know, the legal fraternity is a representation of or a microscope of society like all other industries in the sense that w- men are still uh, the ones in authority, are still the ones in power, which then means that when young girls, uh, you know, think about which career they should be taking up, they're looking at, uh, they're not looking at specific careers because those careers are still very much male-dominated and examples of people who are in those careers are not women. And I think it's very important that women are, you know, making decisions as judges, equally important for them to be advocates, lawyers, and even junior junior staff, police, prosecutors, and every single, you know, layer of the legal system. And the reason for this is because, you know, globally, and particularly in South Africa, women make up the majority. And so if you have men being the judges and, and final arbiters of society, essentially what you're doing is you are making a minority population set the tone and make decisions for the majority. And we see this a lot, for instance, when it comes to uh, big cases around that that have issues around uh, GBV and the types of abuse that is possible. So one case that always comes to my mind is the is a Tanti Marcobella case and the ways in which she was treated and she was treated uh, particularly because she was accused of murdering her husband who was a judge and the the, the ways in which that court case went and the kind of, uh, you know, the lack of recognition of abuse because it wasn't necessarily physical, it was emotional, showcased people uh, people who didn't quite understand what it is to be a woman and what and the types of abuse that women, you know, uh, experience. And I think we see it also even in divorce cases that there isn't a recognition, for instance, of financial abuse because often the people who are standing as arbiters and, and judges are men who themselves uh, already think that, you know, women shouldn't be able to get 50% if they were not working, et cetera, et cetera. And they, and, and they themselves discount even in their own lives the role of women and the unpaid labor and care that women play in society by taking care of kids, by supporting husbands who have careers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there have been some really important cases. So, I mean, the Oscar Pistorius case, you know, live on CNN, we had a black female judge in charge of that for most of it. Um, there were Supreme Court of Appeal rulings later. Um, we had a black female judge, if I remember correctly, handing down the constitutional court judgment that resulted in Jacob Zuma, a former president, being sent to jail. How important are those moments for society to see, to see women in power there? Um, I think, you know, the, the, those moments are very important because, as I said, 
they give young girls especially the opportunity to see that women can be judges and women uh, belong in you know in 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 the in the legal fraternity and also belong in the in the court in the courtroom particularly as decision makers but i think they're also important in that they also showcase because sometimes the fact that it's a woman doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make the best decision for women and that they're necessarily going to be the best example of what should be done in the law. And so they also give people the opportunity to see that, you know, men and women are equally able of making mistakes and, and failings and that we shouldn't stop giving women opportunities simply because one woman has failed or one woman has made an unpopular judgment that doesn't make sense from a, even from a gender and inequality perspective. And I think that you know, we we always need to remember that the problem is, is, you know, as I think the previous speakers have said, the problem is that patriarchy is the problem and that is an institutional problem rather than necessarily specific individuals within the legal fraternity who are keeping it uh, male dominated. And because it's a systemic thing, we need to work at the systemic level and we need to also look at, you know, the legal fraternity as a workplace, even that name fraternity, you know, as a workplace, the kind of sexual harassment that takes place, the expectations that junior staff will basically be the skivvies and slaves of, of more senior staff, the fact that, um, you know, you have, you have law firms that even have dining tables, dining room tables, and there's an expectation that, you you know, if you want to make partner, you're going to have to have dinner at, at the law firm, which is actually absolutely abhorrent if you think about the role that women play in society and, and the fact that we know that generally women are the primary caregivers of children, whether they're in single, in single household or in two-person household. And so if you are building an environment wherein people have to have dinner, uh, at home, what then? I mean, at at work, at work, what then happens to those women in their marriages? What then happens to single to single mothers, and what happens to the children of those women? Because men are able to sit and have that dinner at the workplace because they've got a wife at home, or they've got some or other woman doing the unpaid care labor of looking after the children and ensuring that the home runs and ensuring that the children are provided with the emotional support that they need after school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so we have to go deep and look at what. What are the workplace conditions and how do they make it easier for men and difficult for women? And we'll see that, you know, if we if there were if there was a change in the way that workplaces are engineered, particularly law firms, would become partner because there wouldn't be shame around leaving the office at five o'clock and or at the very least being able to work from from home and people wouldn't be you know people wouldn't be picking partners based on who can stay at the office the longest I mean some people even sleep in the office which is absolutely unacceptable if you think about it from a mental health perspective and from a, a perspective of people needing to have a work-life balance just under general regardless of of, um, of gender but of course the issue of race is also a big one, particularly in South Africa, where black women still continue to be undermined, still continue to be treated, uh, you know, more as as probably you'll probably find some some judges would have experiences of being assumed to be the cleaner, as you said, rather than the judge, because the people are not used to seeing a black woman in such positions of power.
Uh, Sundan Gresheng, thank you. I really appreciate the time, the diversity expert, bringing it into your mediated conversation this morning. My thanks also to Advocate Brenda Madumise, the director of the WISE Collective. Advocate Mawanda Seti Baza is an advocate in private practice and a member of Pabasa. And starting us off today, the advocate and professor Michelle Leroux, uh, an advocate, of course, and an adjunct professor at the Law School of the University of Cape Town. Uh, all right, lots going on uh, today, as you can tell. I will be off for a few days. Yes, I'm taking the long weekend. Yes, I'm a bad person, I'm aware. Uh, but I don't know if we belong to the International Criminal Court, so you can't ask them to prosecute me. Um, uh, from